Okay, good afternoon and welcome and huge apologies to those of you that, that don't have seats. I've got great confidence that these panellists will make your standing worthwhile, not to put pressure on them or anything like that. So um, I'm Nairi Woods, Director of the Global Economic Governance Programme. You're <coughs> all very welcome to this, the first seminar in this term series. And hopefully on your seats you'll find, or somewhere, the programme of events for the rest of the term. <coughs> Next week we have um, Jackie Best speaking on the IMF and World Bank, and the week after Thomas Carruthers from the Carnegie Endowment. Um, but today we're um, reflecting on governing climate change after Copenhagen. And I'm delighted to have um, here on the panel first Professor Sir David King, Director of Oxford's Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. David was the government's chief scientific advisor from 2000 until 2007 and is known to many of you for his um, tireless championing of this issue in government, in the media and outside of it. And he will start today's discussion with a reflection, as it were, fresh from Copenhagen and the discussions there on um, the key things that he took away from that. Cameron Hepburn is an environmental economist working here in Oxford. Um, he is also associated with the Smith School. He's the founder of Vivid Economics. He's on the DEFRA advisory panel. And he is co-editor with our third panelist of this magnificent volume, The Economics and Politics of Climate Change, which I'm very glad to say um, that Vicky at the back um, will be making available to you at the end of the seminar if you would like to purchase a copy. With Vicky, I'm assured by Cameron, a 20% discount. <laughs> so welcome, and Sir David. Just taking you back to Kyoto, uh, we had uh, written into uh, international law in Kyoto that a further agreement would be reached at the end of 2009. So that's what Copenhagen was about. It was an agreement that would take the Kyoto process into 2012 and beyond. There was a great sense of uh, expectation uh, uh, before Copenhagen and I think inevitably a great sense of disappointment at the end of it. Um, I think the expectations were set unreasonably high. But let me just make a few comments about the transition from 97 Kyoto to 2009 Copenhagen because I think we found ourselves at Copenhagen in a totally different place. And by this I mean, first of all, that the uh, uh, actions of Kyoto would have, if implemented by the Annex I nations, would have overall reduced carbon dioxide emissions by 5% compared with business as usual. The scientific community is now making it absolutely clear that this is a puny sum compared with what is actually required. And uh, we now know that we need to reduce our emissions globally by at least 50% by 2050. And for the advanced nations, the so-called Annex I nations, that would imply an 80% reduction at least by 2050. This is, therefore, a total transition in our economic behavior that the scientific community is saying is required. And in terms of the political response to that, 
I, I think it would be fair to say that if somebody in 1997 had announced um, uh, that the European Union was going to commit itself to an 80% reduction in emissions by mid-century, that would have been seen to be a, a daft statement to make. And yet that's where we have arrived at with the European Union, starting with the British government's position, and then, of course, followed by President Obama stating from the White House, as, as distinct from his Senate, that uh, an 80% reduction was also the intention of the United States. We can argue about starting dates, and we probably will, but I think these are major steps forward. Uh, we had uh, uh, very important statements then also following through from the rapidly emerging powers. So something else that has changed from 97 to the present time is, of course, the fact that China, India, and Brazil are now rising... Uh, economies And as from the announcement yesterday, I understand China is now the second biggest economy in the world. Um, so what, what we're seeing is a totally different situation from one in which we could describe one set of nations as Annex 1 and another set essentially as non-Annex 1 to a situation where we have the developed world, the rapidly emerging powers and the poorer nations. And that distinction was coming through far more clearly in uh, Copenhagen. I think that was a, uh, a set of important steps. So we had this flurry of activities from heads of states, and I would have to say led by Gordon Brown, um, in the run-up to Copenhagen, where they were making announcements as to what their commitments uh, would be, and then finally committing themselves to go. So we ended up with over 100 heads of states uh, in, uh, in the meeting. So I think that was an important uh, uh, change. Another important change between 97 and 2009, completely unprecedented, uh, was the attitude of the business community. Uh, I was a member of the Copenhagen Climate Council that was set up at arm's length from the Danish government to try and get the business community to state their position and that we, we held a meeting, a large number of CEOs turned up from around the world in Copenhagen in June uh, last year. And the response was very clear. What the business community want is clarity, long-term clarity, on actions over climate change. They also, I think, many of them, are pushing for a good price on carbon dioxide. They want clear signals that we are serious about defossilizing our economy, and they want long-term certainty in those signals so they can make their appropriate business plans. The business community, I would very briefly say, have switched from saying this is a massive risk to our business, to saying we can see the opportunities from this challenge. So the, 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 I think those are all uh, critical uh, parameters. And then why did I have no high expectations? This is the United States position, with uh, uh, Bush famously declaring a few months into his presidency that Kyoto was dead, and he didn't just mean the Kyoto plan, he meant action on climate change was dead, and for eight years, we had an administration that was blocking every move in the international scene on climate change. Now, Obama has inherited that, and it's quite clear that Obama could not move without having Congress and Senate first agree to any actions that he could take. Since Senate has not yet met, it was very clear that Obama could only play a delaying action. So although the very mood of Obama was very different from the American position before, in practice it wasn't very different. So in that famous confrontation that many of you might have seen on television when Obama made his speech and, and appeared to be attacking uh, Wen Jiabao, who had 
uh, not being listened to by Obama, but who was listening to Obama, this was seen to be by uh, uh, the Prime Minister of China, by the Premier of China, this was seen to be a bit of an insult. And so it didn't set a very good tone to the subsequent discussion. I saw it very differently. This was Obama actually addressing his Senate and being tough with the Chinese uh, leadership in front of his, uh, his home crowd. This, to me, is a big disadvantage of the UNFCCC process. The United Nations process is done transparently and in full view of the public, which means that heads of states are speaking to other people than those that they're trying to negotiate with. In government, I was pushing for some years to create a heads of states grouping where this could be discussed. And this uh, ended up with the Glen Eagles meeting when our Prime Minister finally agreed that, first of all, we should put climate change as the only item on the agenda. We then also had African development, which I was very pleased with. But the arrival of the heads of states from the plus five countries was then a follow-through of that. So we already recognised the importance of the rapidly emerging powers. And so as we move through the meeting itself, it wasn't terribly meaningful in many ways. The, the media were, were dialed up to overload with expectation and um, the, the organisation of Copenhagen is a, a matter for other discussions but being left out in the freezing cold for hours and hours as most delegates were was, was hardly inducive to a nice atmosphere. Um, but I, I would say the UNFCCC process of negotiating is ponderous and unedifying uh, in the extreme. If you, if you sit and, uh, and go through these discussions, you know, land use in Zambia is a critically important issue, but is it critically important to the negotiations on reducing carbon emissions? And these, these negotiations have been carried on for a very long time. Until we get heads of states saying, this is what we want, please hammer it out, I don't think we get action because most of those negotiators, I've worked with my own team, would always be saying, wait, let's put the brakes on this because I'm not sure what my head of state would, uh, would say if we were to uh, give prior agreement to this. So I think, I think uh, the other very big positive to come out of the run-up to Copenhagen, if not Copenhagen itself, is that we now have the engagement of the global community. Uh, the, uh, the African nations found their voice. The walkout of the African nations on that Monday, they did come back, meant that they, they had a presence and they found their voice, and it was a very clear voice, and I think that was important. What we had was a clear understanding that this is a global problem and we're all in this, and it requires a, a global solution. So I think that was important. Um, I'm not sure when Nari's going to cut me off, but let me just say... The, the U.S. versus China uh, uh, public contretemps is against what all of us know is required. That if we can get the Prime Minister of China, the heads of states of China, President and Premier, to agree with the President of the United States on true action to manage this problem, the rest of the nations will fall into place. And yet, because of this public uh, 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 display... What we had was a, a, a counteraction there uh, with, uh, with Wen Jiabao visibly upset by, by the process. No, there was a culture clash there. He should have understood what was happening. So what, what we ended up with was an accord. 
And the accord itself is not a protocol. I would have been horrified if we'd have got a protocol out of that meeting because it would have not managed to achieve the magnitude of the result that we would want. Instead, we got an accord, and the accord had three parts to it, uh, uh, an agreement to go with the European Union. We will not exceed two degrees centigrade, although no clear indication as to how the United Nations will ban an e excess of a two degree centigrade rise. Uh, we had, uh, within the accord, um, a requirement that all the Annex I countries would have to set out their own targets by the end of January, so we will shortly hear uh, what those Annex I countries say. I'm very interested to see what Russia is, is going to say, for example. Um, and as we uh, look at the third part of the accord, this was picking up on Gordon Brown's notion that we need to create a flow of money to the poorer countries of the world to manage adaptation and mitigation. Uh, and this is going to generate apparently uh, about $30 billion uh, between 2010 and 2012. That's near term, and I believe that may therefore materialize, as distinct from the bigger sum, $100 billion a, a year by 2020, um, which I believe is perhaps pie in the sky. In other words, there's a, a long-term promise that every head of state can sign up to because it's not, uh, it's not immediate. I'm afraid I'm rather cynical about these statements because we have seen many statements in the past which have not been materialised. Am I done? Um, I think, I, think I, I, I virtually am. We need... <laughs> We, I, my last sentence, we need to move on because we no longer are looking at a potential Copenhagen Protocol because what was left out, and this was, I believe, the action of the Obama team, was a timeline towards a protocol. So there is no indication of a timeline for action. So this, this wasn't in there. And as we, therefore, move into future discussions, I'm looking clearly at the G20 heads of states meeting as key to the, to, to the way forward, but I do think we're going to go into a series of parallel actions with a possibility, let's hope, of convergence into a single price on carbon dioxide as we move forward with governments pulling their own regulatory and obligatory levers to manage this defossilizing. But it's not going to be a simple process. Thank you. Thank you. Um that's a fantastic beginning, both the positive steps uh, that have been made and some challenges to be addressed. Cameron. Thanks, Mari. And like Dave, I think I have probably more than uh, enough to say for 10 minutes. Um, but I'd like to say three things. Firstly, what I think happened. Secondly, what the impact of that is. And thirdly, uh, what's the way forward? So what happened? Let me give you five disappointments first. And then five achievements second, because the glass is half full, and I'm resolutely optimistic. The disappointments. We didn't get a 2050 target for the world. Second, uh, we didn't get a peaking date, so no kind of track towards that target. Third, we didn't get a, an agreement around 2020 emission reductions, although it's probably a little bit too early to say, because as Dave said, on the 31st of January we'll be seeing what the Annex 1 countries are going to do there. So it is kind of too early to call whether Copenhagen has succeeded or failed in that respect. Uh, the fourth disappointment is, having failed on the first three, we didn't get a legally binding structure to get agreement on those first three. So we don't have a pathway to sorting out the failures on the first three. And the final thing is, is slightly more of a personal 
disappointment, I guess. I think that a core part of this problem is getting um, shared vision and an agreement around research and development. Mm -hmm. And R&D has not been adequately on the agenda for some time. So it's not a disappointment in the sense that it was expected out of Copenhagen. It wasn't. But I think the sooner we get R&D off the low-carbon technology seriously onto, onto the agenda, and not just tech transfer, and not just the types of kind of uh, discussions that are had within the UN process. I mean, a, a serious attack on getting an R&D agreement, the, the better. So they're my five disappointments. So that's the air on top of the water in the glass. But uh, let me describe some water in the glass. So five achievements. First, I think they did a very good job of um, covering the history from, from Kyoto to today. And where we are now is significantly greater coverage of the issue. So coverage is the first point by way of countries. We have the US and we have China at the negotiating table, both recognising that this is an issue and both starting to take, take steps to do something about it. And that's a real achievement. Also on coverage, uh, we've, we've expanded the scope of the sectors that are under examination. There's, there's, a, there's a pathway ahead on reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. So I think that's, that sectoral expansion, getting that on the agenda is a real achievement. Second is MRV, or Monitoring, Reporting and Verification. This was a big sticking block uh, in the lead-up to Copenhagen. Who, who gets to look at who's done what and how do we measure it? It's the, the old chestnut of uh, enforcement and compliance. And it's not perfect, but I think we actually got a way through on MRV in the form of this international consultation and transparency that doesn't uh, impinge upon national sovereignty. The third thing I think we achieved is on finance. So getting the 30 billion quick start money for the next three years is, is a real achievement. And uh, getting at least the agreement to head towards 100 billion, like Dave, I guess uh, we believe that when we see the money flowing, but, um, but both of those two agreements on finance start to point in the right direction. The fourth achievement, um, and someone called this a failure, but I call it an achievement, is, is a kind of a shattering of the previous geopolitical situation where you had just north and, north and south fighting it out from one another. I think having China clearly split away from the G77, the emergence of BASIC as an important negotiating block with China at the lead, th these things more accurately reflect the incentives of the players and the real politics that is going on. And, and actually knowing where we stand with the geopolitics is, is helpful rather than pretending that we've got this slightly false north-south uh, debate going on as an achievement. And finally, and some also may not consider this an achievement, but I think what we have is a clearer understanding of the role of the UNFCCC in this process going forwards. And I'm not one who says that we should abandon the UN process. I think it does serve an important role. But I think it's now very clear that we are not going to do the negotiating in that forum. It might be a little bit unkind to say that the UNFCCC will serve as a rubber stamp for an agreement that is negotiated out of the G20 or the major economies forum. But uh, one way or another, the UNFCCC is, is effectively a kind of uh, a receptacle body for deals that have to be thrashed out in smaller groupings. And I think, uh, I think that became clear with the accord, and it will be clear going forwards. So they're my five disappointments, five achievements. Uh, and I, I've refrained from uh, adding a, a, as a disappointment the fact that I also stood in the snow for three hours, which was <laughs> a lot of fun. So what's the impact of that and what happens next? Let me take three regions. Uh, firstly, the US. Actually, let me, let me say overall, I think the impact of this is that what we will see is not a kind of 
you know, uh, first best economist's ideal solution where you have uh, global carbon trading with, with one carbon price. Uh, I think, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. What we're looking at is a set of fragmented uh, national policy, uh, policies and politics, and the focus over the next few years will be on what countries do individually, and countries will do very different things uh, from one another domestically. That's probably quite right. So, so if I take three areas that are very important. The US, we're looking to uh, the summer for the possible passage uh, of the US emissions trading scheme. It's been passed in the lower house, as you know, the Waxman-Markey bill, and the Boxer-Kerry bill is in the Senate. Events in Massachusetts uh, didn't help very much. The Democrats have just lost, lost a seat there. And uh, I think, you know, I mean, it's, 2010 is a very, very important year for climate policy because it's touch and go whether we, whether we get that trading scheme and a broad price of carbon throughout the US economy through. One thing to watch is whether Senator Murkowski gets her way uh, and to block the EPA's role in regulating uh, greenhouse gas emissions as a backup. The, the most encouraging thing Obama and the administration have at the moment is the fact that if they don't get a trading scheme in place, industry faces the EPA uh, unfairly characterised perhaps as a bunch of greenies, but nevertheless regulating greenhouse gases instead. So compared with that, the emissions trading scheme actually looks okay. But if the backstop is removed, then we could end up with a little bit of a vacuum in, in US policy. So it's a very important time. Second area is China. I mean, I think China emerges from uh, the last couple of months uh, empowered by its influence. Uh, clearly, uh, an, uh, not just an emerging power, but a power on the, on the global stage in this as, and, the, and as the leader of BASIC. I think it was stung by criticisms from the West of its role in, in the process uh, and in, in blocking the process. But um, the Chinese put their intensity target on the table, 40 to 45%. I think we should see that as a minimum target. Uh, they don't like to fail to meet their targets. So, and if you look at the analysis done, I'm afraid to say it's not actually far off business as usual. So they got a lot of credit for an intensity target that sounds quite impressive, 40 to 45% but it really isn't a great deal of difference from business as usual. So China can go further, and I think they probably will go further in the course of the next, next six months to a year. The other thing I think you'll see China doing is continuing with its kind of it, the expansion of what you might call the green industrial complex uh, to create the technologies to export to the rest of the world as a source of um, you know, increased political power and as uh, sensible economic activity too. So... China has an interest in the, in the continued growth and emergence of receptacle markets for green technology because it is now doing so much of the production of those technologies. Finally, the EU uh, emerged considerably weakened, obviously, from these discussions. Um, there's debate going on about whether the EU ramps up the 20% target to the 30% target. Um, I guess time will tell. Um, but I think you'll also see the emergence of carbon taxes in the EU. I dare say Dieter will say a little bit about that. Um, and pressure on regimes with, or on states with carbon taxes to employ border taxes as well from the European point of view. So where does that leave us with the way forward? Uh, another, another minute on, on where we go from here. I've been spending a bit of my time talking with uh, managers of very large pools of capital, private finance. So pension funds with you know, over two or three hundred billion in their in their hands, 
and getting these guys together with um, multilateral development bank representatives and domestic developing country representatives to say, how does all of this work in practice? How do we do deals to make the investment money flow? Because at the end of the day, there's an enormous amount of investment is required to shift us onto a low-carbon pathway. That requires a lot of money, and it requires to be mobilised by the people who have the money and the people who can change the policies to make sure the money flows. And one of the positive things I'm seeing is a little bit of an interplay here between kind of three stakeholder groups. The, the pools of capital, the domestic policymakers, and the, the, the multilateral development banks. And the basic idea is that we can take some of that quick start money, we can use it to um, effectively provide incremental cost coverage and some risk reduction for World Bank uh, and pension fund investors. And faced with you know, pools of billions of, of dollars to invest, um, countries like India, who are interested in developing in a low-carbon way anyway, are likely to think about making their, their, their uh, policy regime attractive to that incoming investment. Because if it's led by the developing countries and is consistent with their development pathways anyway, and it's just making sure that it's low-carbon, then it's actually in their interests. So it's a, there's, a, there's a coalition there whose interests appear to be aligned. And so I'd say, watch that space uh, in the next 12 months. And with any luck, um, that may, may start to mobilise the large amounts of capital that we need to actually start solving the problem. Thanks. Thank you very much, uh, Cameron.